And so what I found was a lot of candidates were just saying that word and and talking about percentages and it's up 6.73%. And it just doesn't mean anything to anyone. It doesn't mean anything to real people. And if you're not able to tell your story and make an emotive connection with someone on the other side, forget it. Welcome to Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, and this show is here to support your interest in center-right politics, policy, and breaking news. Listen in and discover how to awaken your inner ideal candidate and, if you're ready, how you can jump in and change the world as a runner or a supporter. Welcome to Political Contessa. If you or a friend have ever considered running or you know a woman who should, I've got something just for you. My quick guide called Secrets from the Campaign Trail. It will show you five signs to tell you you're ready to enter the political arena. To get these tips and learn about all new podcast episodes and ways to get involved, head over to politicalcontessa.com. Hello, and welcome to Political Contessa. This is Jennifer Nassor, and I am your Political Contessa. Today on this episode, I have with me Chris Lane, who's a pollster and director of client strategy at Signal, one of the nation's premier private polling services. Chris spent a substantial amount of time of his career as a political operative. He was political director and finance director for Governor Charlie Baker and Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito in Massachusetts. He was campaign manager for a great guy in Massachusetts who had run for Congress, the director of development of a chamber of commerce and a political consultant. And now, now he has this amazing job as director of client strategy. And so I wanted to bring Chris on because I find polling to be super interesting and actually exciting. And maybe that's because I'm a political wonk and I, I love all of the inside stuff. But here's why it's important. Because as a lawyer, I love to have information to back up my arguments. I love to have the evidence. And so what I want you to know is the difference between reading a poll that is BS and is basically cultivated to prove a point that someone wanted to prove versus an accurate poll that actually they're they're held accountable and there's more transparency in that poll. And to use this data to back up your, your beliefs. And so you can find these and they're great to have, but you really need to have someone who is trustworthy and the poll that's trustworthy before you use it. So with that, I welcome Chris Lane. Jen, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time. All right. So let's go. We are, you know, we're marching toward 2024, right? Everyone in 2022 thought this is going to be a red tsunami, right? It went from a red wave to a red tsunami and it ended up being like a red, I don't know, like a little red, whoops. Ripple. <laughs> ripple, yeah. So what what are you seeing? What are the trends you're seeing? And especially, I'm I'm gonna just let you go with with all of this here, but I'm also especially interested in 
if you if you see any trends on women on you know college educated women who are voting on women running for office so so talk to us yeah first of all the number one question i get over and over and over again is what the hell happened in 2022 the answer to that question is about 10,000 different things but the things i've been focused on and and really trying to talk to my clients about heading into 2024 is twofold. One, our gap with women between Republicans and Democrats is the largest it's been in recent memory. Our latest national poll would, would signal uh, there is now a 10-point gap between Democrats and Republicans for women. You know, you cannot compete on a national level when you're you're 10 points behind. Uh, just for context, in October of last year, just before the election happened, that number was like four or five points, which still wasn't a great place to be. But you know, nearly double that now. The reason that's particularly important is women are making up a larger percentage of the vote than they ever have. I would say 95% of the polls I conduct, uh, women make up 52, 53, 54, 55% of the vote. And, wow. and frankly, too many meetings that I'm in, too many campaign teams I interact with is seven men on the call. And then they go out and they make their decisions. And so I'm constantly asking for to make sure, you know, there, there's a woman on the team. There's and if there isn't, run this mail by them, run the digital by them, elicit their reactions because we're not getting to where we need to be. And and there's a missing wheel in this cog and, and we're gonna find ways to fix it. That's really well, Chris, I need to bring you around with me when I go into these meetings and and talk to these guys. You know, I've I've said to different folks, like, I just need to see at the table because if I'm sitting there and you say something that is so offensive to me as a conservative woman, then like, what are other women going to think about this language and this tactic and strategy? And that's really important that you, you know, that you recognize that because we are a large voting block. And I think over... I think it really happened in 2016 when, you know, that Access Hollywood video came out and, you know, Trump was out running and women were just totally horrified. And not that Hillary Clinton was ever, I mean, to me, I, I always said there are women who want to help other women. And then there are women who would like never to help. They only want to be the only woman. And that was Hillary Clinton. And um, so I don't think women were flocking to her, but I think women started really getting more interested in voting and getting out their how they felt because of that. And maybe it started happening sooner, but I feel like the Me Too movement and the whole Trump thing really started it. And it's important to to note that because it is a gigantic voting block and and a candidate, especially nationally, can't win with that that gigantic 10 percent. That's that's enormous. Yeah, it's 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 insane. And and the other the, the second part of that twofold is is the idea that I don't think we did a good enough job telling our story in 2022. So just as an example, the, the top issue from day one to Election Day of 2022 was inflation. Inflation, inflation, inflation. And so what I found was a lot of candidates were just saying that word and, and talking about percentages and it's up 6.73%. And it just doesn't mean anything to anyone. It doesn't mean anything to real people. And if you're not able to tell your story and make an emotive connection with someone on the other side, forget it. And, and, and yeah, inflation was important, but what does that mean? 
it, it means the difference between going to the grocery store and then going and buying your kids soccer cleats or going to the grocery store and going home. That's the story of inflation, the story of public safety. You know, we, we can use all these scare tactics all we want, but what does it actually mean? Does it mean your neighborhood's a little less safe? Does it mean you have to wait outside a store because there's a capacity for X amount of security guards for every patron? Like, what does that actually mean? And then the abortion issue, like in, in too many 50-50 states, when all things are equal and candidates are kind of viewed the same way, I believe we lost a ton of races, 52-48, that we otherwise would have won in, you know, quote unquote, other red wave years. So do you think it's, I mean, because you're in this business and, and you know, you're on the right, just Republicans that have a tough time telling their story? Is it both women and men? Is it is it, you know, on both sides and just... Because when you're at 52-48, right, no one is making a super compelling argument. It's just, it just happens to be one side is doing a worse job or one side is doing a slightly better job. So what are you seeing out there? Um, I think as a general rule, I would say Democrats do a slightly better job of, of the storytelling aspect. Um, I, I think Republicans want to win every argument intellectually. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, we make decisions emotionally and then justify them with logic after the fact. And so too often uh, we're, we're trying to win the argument rather than find consensus. And and I, I think I'm speaking more about Republicans in, in blue and, and purple states that need to find their way back to the middle. And then, you know, as far as other issues are concerned, I, I think that there's a middle gray area spectrum on a whole bunch of issues that candidates are sometimes unwilling to meet people halfway. And when you draw these super hard lines in the, uh, in the sand, it makes it that much more difficult for someone to even want to consider coming over to someone who may not hold all their beliefs, but the ones that matter most to them. Yeah, it's so interesting. And again, this is like, um, so I sit on a couple of advisory boards and a couple of boards and I end up being the only Republican on them. Right. And it's like, I'm always like, so am I the diversity candidate? Like <laughs> living in Massachusetts, like everyone's a Democrat and I'm the Republican. Yep. And, and so there's sometimes language that, you know, an email will be crafted and, Oh, we're going to send this out or this press release is going to go out, or this is what we're looking at. And I'll sit there and I'm like, ah, uh, it's like nails on a chalkboard to me. Right. Because the language is so, something that will not resonate on the right side of the aisle, but to the far left, it sounds, it sounds like their ears. Right. And I'm like, no, for everyone else from like middle left all the way to the right, they need like the new urban dictionary to go through that. And all it says to me is like stuff that is just so far off. And so it's the same thing with what you're saying about like inflation. Cause I know I heard it all the time and doing TV and radio, I always, you know, would use my own examples as a single mother, right? And going out to the food store and saying, okay, this is like an actual serious thing that I grapple with sometimes. It is sometimes cheaper for me to order takeout or like, you know, go grab something quick than it is for me to go to the food store and go buy food to cook. That's crazy, right? There are times I've gone to the gas station and filled up my car and I'm like, I, it, it's over $100 to fill up my gas tank. 
why is it so expensive? You know, but, you know, okay, so someone's going to go, we all started carpooling to soccer because it's expensive to pay for gas. And there are all these cars going to the same spot. You know, at least we can all kind of share the burden. Those are actual real issues that people think about. And when you tell those stories and people are like, oh, I didn't think about that. You know, we had in Massachusetts, the 4%, you know, so-called millionaires tax. And I started giving examples of like, hey, you know, when your grandparent bought that house in East Boston for $14,000 in 1944, and that same house is worth $2 million today. And, you know, your parents inherited it and now it's going to be yours one day and you want to sell it, you have to pay money on it. Like those things, because not everyone is a mathematician and just sits there and just (laughs) calculates those things. Right. But it's the same thing. I've been I've been harping on politicians lately about the abortion thing. You need to get ahead of it. You're either pro or anti and it doesn't give a good story. So it's it's nice to hear that's what you guys see too in the polling area. Yeah, and, and it's, again, I'm gonna go back to that emotive connection and, and anything you need to do. And I'm gonna both compliment former President Trump and and call out the, the flaws with, with what he did. Build the wall, lock her up, make America great again. You know, those are powerful messages that, elicit an emotional response. Make America great again. Again, it it represents a sense of loss. What did you used to have that you no longer have? And that fires people up and that that gives them energy that they otherwise wouldn't have. Now, I I think it's a pretty reasonable stance to want to secure the border, to keep our people safe, to keep drugs from coming over, to uh, limit human trafficking. But if you're talking to an apolitical center left, center right person, and you're screaming, build the wall, you're going to have a really hard time winning that middle percent of the vote over. Whereas if you just laid out the three or four things I just did about making our communities more safe, keeping drugs out of our communities, stopping human trafficking, those are pretty reasonable stances to have to keep people safe. So it's a delicate balance between the two. Sometimes I have candidates who want to scream from the mountaintops and get people fired up. And that works really, really well for just enough percent of the vote to lose. And then you have other people who are wanting to win the argument and ignore the emotion of it and ignore the realities of, of voting. And then they lose a base that doesn't come with them to vote. And then they did just enough to lose too. I, I get annoyed with the idea that it's a binary choice. It is not. You can do both at the same time. Yeah, I think. And it seems like a lot of candidates don't realize that. So when you're going out and polling, like the public safety thing, right? You know, this is a democratic flaw. Defund the police. How much did that get traction for them? Because now their cities are completely chaotic and they're trying to get rid of all the people that are there that have come there that are causing residents to leave and be injured and killed. You know, so they they have their their end of it too. What what do you see in in polling these days? You know, on something like public safety, how do candidates on the right take that back, win back that messaging on public safety without coming across as too elitist? Maybe. So first and foremost, 
just like Democrats were elated to hear certain scary terms from the right. Uh, every time I heard the term defund the police, I felt even better. It was music to our ears and it won us a bunch of races, particularly in New York, actually, more than any other place. Uh, New York did have a red wave. It, they had a red tsunami. And it was because they did a really good job of understanding who their voters are. You know, New York's a blue state through and through. Uh, but they've been through so much from a public safety perspective, from a drug perspective, from um, cashless bail situations that they had had enough. And again, it's that emotional response of this is hurting my family. This is hurting my community. This is hurting the value of my house. Real things, not 7.34% inflation or $30 trillion in debt. Like those numbers are fake to people at this point. And, and we know they're real and they should be treated seriously and they need to be addressed. But as far as winning and losing elections and winning over voters, it's not moving the needle. And that's the other thing that I preach to people all the time is there's a difference between a popular message and an effective message. And what I mean by that is this is the example I use constantly. Term limits. Term limits polls off the charts. 87% of people are for term limits. Wow. But when, you, when we actually measure what moves people's vote, on the effectiveness scale, like what message actually took them from undecided to one candidate or one candidate to the other, term limits moves no one. If, if you're trying to decide who to vote for, whether one's for term limits and one isn't, is doing nothing to actually move voters. So when you're in a position to poll or you're in a position to help people get elected, think about the difference between what is popular and what is actually going to move folks. Cause oftentimes there's a huge, huge difference between those two things. That's a really excellent example. I know. Cause I'm in that 87% love term limits. I think we should have term limits, but you're right. I, I, that wouldn't be the thing that would make me vote for Elizabeth Warren. If she came out and said that, I'd be like, still not voting for you. <laughs> Nothing tells me that wouldn't tip the scales for you. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so two things. Just go back to, you know, someone with a base, right? So let's use Trump, for example. Trump's base is what? Do you see 28 to 30 percent, 27 to 29 percent of like voting for Trump will always vote for Trump. And I use this all the time. Trump said, you know, I walk in the middle of Fifth Avenue, shoot someone in the face and people are still voting for me. Right. And that is I, I can't believe he said that. But I also can't believe it's true. But it's true. So in a case like that, you have a base that's never going away. How does a national candidate and not necessarily on the presidential, you know, pick c congressional candidate, whatever. How does someone win when someone has a locked in base that's already that large? Yeah. So a, a few things as far as Trump is concerned specifically and, and heading into 2024, I would encourage people to always look at what kind of poll they're looking at. Are they looking at a state poll or are they looking at a national poll? Because frankly, the national polls for a presidential primary race don't mean anything at all. They're irrelevant. And, and so, you know, it's hard to say if he's at 28 or 32 or 37 percent because it's a state by state thing. And those are the only results that that actually matter. As far as the appetite for someone like Trump heading into 2024 or Trump, not someone like Trump, Trump himself, 
he's still very popular. Uh, he, he's still very popular amongst Republicans. What I will tell you, though, is if you look at particularly last year before this race started to heat up, whether people wanted Trump to be the nominee again in 2024, a majority of Republicans actually said no. And then a overwhelming majority of, of general election voters did not want to see a Trump-Biden rematch, including Republicans. So I do think Trump still holds a place in people's hearts that more has to do with the idea of pushing back against elitists, pushing a gap against the status quo, pushing back against the machine. And whether or not you know your average voter believes that Trump does that, he has created an emotional connection with farmers in Nebraska that they believe Donald Trump understands and thinks like people just like them. And, and that's a powerful, powerful tool. Uh, and then the second half of your question about how do you how do you hold on to the base is you have to understand what what makes them tick and and you know we do a bunch of stuff as far as those messaging that I was just talking about message mapping and and effectiveness of message and emotive analysis and understanding what words people are using again not not having to choose that binary choice between moderate Republican conservative Republican accepting whatever label is is handed it to you. There, there's a nuanced way to figure all this out. There's a tightrope to walk. It's not easy. And, and sometimes I worry it's a race to the right uh, in primaries. And it's pretty easy to be very competitive in a Republican primary. But if you're in a competitive 50-50 district, the odds of you running to the right and then turning around and using that same platform in a purple district general election, you have virtually no chance. So, you know, something that I've heard my whole career is let's make sure it's a primary that's actually worth winning. I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I, this is actually, um, you know, something I have to kind of correct my friends on every once in a while when we talk about politics. It's like, you know, you could love the rhetoric, but the rhetoric isn't going to get you elected in a general election. And so, you know, it might sound good and make all of us feel like, yeah, 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 that's exactly what we want to hear, you know, and that's great for us. But that's great if you're a talk show host. It's not great if you're a candidate, because at the end of the day, you have to appeal to a general population and not just to people who think exactly like you. And so, you know, my normal my normal joke is, I don't agree with my mother 100% of the time, or maybe like, sorry, mom, 60. I don't agree with my kids at the majority, you know, like 80, 80% of the time, maybe we agree, but maybe we don't. So when you look at your own people and see that you don't necessarily agree 100% of the time, how could you ever find a politician who's going to agree with you 100% of the time? So now we're, you know, we're halfway through 2023, looking at 2024, what are you seeing as the trends? Um, what are the candidates that you're working with, you know, or the committees that you're working with? What are what are they looking at as the most important talking points, you know, for their most important talking points? Yeah. So I, I alluded to earlier, there's never been a bigger gap between men and women. And that's a that's a problem that Republicans have to address. There's also never been a bigger gap between college-educated and non-college-educated voters, uh, and that gap continues to grow. If you're on the Republican side, this is good news, because for a very long time, you lost non-college-educated people. And again, if 
credit where credit's due. If Donald Trump did something really good for the Republican Party, it's that. As far as the issues are concerned, inflation is still number one. Inflation in the economy and and jobs. In, In fact, President Biden's numbers are almost as bad as they've ever been. And that's kind of hard to believe considering where we were at uh, with the supply chain last year in Afghanistan and, you know, the heart of the worst of the gas prices, you know, it, it felt like he may have come out the other side a little bit, uh, but he's kind of right back where he was. And then from there, gun control is eating up more and more of the conversation on both sides. Threats to democracy and illegal immigration have, have really picked up momentum as far as the top issue is concerned. And, and what's compelling here is re- Republicans and Democrats do agree on something, that gun control is an issue or gun rights are an issue and threats to democracy is an issue and illegal immigration is an issue. It just happens to be very split on what they actually feel about that. So we're, we're seeing somewhat similar issues as we saw last cycle. And I just think the narrative created around it and and how people talk about it is the difference between winning and losing type races. And, and the messaging you choose to use and the narrative that you're you're building around your campaign. I also believe that as time goes on here, I'd say the last six, eight years in particular, the days of you know the best credentials win are are gone. It's who who can create the most compelling story, the most compelling brand, and, and support those things with all the things that we typically talk about and your top issues. But if you're not resonating with people, if they don't think you they under, you understand people like them, you're just going to be another ad in between a Geico commercial and the start of the third quarter. And it until people take that more seriously, uh, there's a lot of money being flushed with messaging that A, isn't correct, or B, is not effective. So... Is abortion going to be a big issue in 2024 again? Probably. And by probably, I mean, yes. Yeah. Uh, the, the the hard thing about abortion is that if you actually get very deep in the conversation and the nuance of how people feel about early term abortion and late term abortion, about 80% of the country is in a relatively similar boat. Uh, and that boat looks something like Abortion should be available, especially in the case of rape and incest. Early in the pregnancy is not, you know, nothing to get excited about, but understandable. And then at a certain cutoff point, I'm not going to name the month or trimester or whatever. uh, It becomes wrong. Here's the problem with that argument, though. If you're a politician and you have one soundbite or six seconds during debate to answer that question, the moment you start heeing and hawing and trying to get into the weeds, you sound wishy-washy mm. and you sound like you're just trying to appeal to all folks. And when you try to appeal to everyone, you're appealing to no one. And so I think there's a whole bunch of pro-life and pro-choice people who are much, much closer on this issue than they realize. And I think that there's total extremes on this issue, six, seven, eight, ten 10% on each side of the flank uh, that are driving the conversation. And so when, when I'm talking to candidates, if they're in a competitive district and there's a very clear consensus from their electorate, whether they're looking for a pro-choice or pro-life candidate, I encourage them to answer the question, I'm blank, and put a period and move on to something else. Mm. Because 
once you start explaining the differences between every possible scenario, you're in trouble. Mm, interesting. That's great. Very interesting. Um, and then my next question, which is kind of, you know, related to this one, happens to be with that that gap with women. Um, I know a lot of friends who or I have a lot of friends who the gun control issue is a really big issue for them. And, you know, I try to say, well, listen, like you can't have a you can't have a one size fit all on this thing because we live in an area where we're so dense. I mean, it's just you couldn't imagine someone walking down Newberry Street or Boylston Street in Boston with a rifle, right? Like, I, I mean, it, that would just it would be crazy. But if you live in South Dakota or North Dakota or Montana, you know, you might have them hanging off the back of your car. You live in a very different world, right? We have 700,000 people that live in the city of Boston. There are 900,000 people that live in the state of South Dakota. <laughs> so it's a very different situation. But one of my younger friends um, that has a, a young, young child said that now with playgroups, I never thought about this when my kids were young. The question that parents have for the other parents are, do you have a gun? And if you do, is it locked up? And she said, if the answer is, and, and she's always been a Republican. And she said, if the answer is, no, I don't have a gun, but someone finds out that you do have a gun, like you're off, you are like socially cut off forever. And so that's actually a question that people ask now. And I thought that was so interesting because that's pretty new. I mean, I have an 11 year old and I never had asked that question before. Yeah. Gun control is the number one issue for Democrats heading into 2024 mm. by a pretty considerable margin. 32% of Democrats, their top issue is gun control. 19% is uh, inflation in the economy. For independence, gun control is the number two issue. A very distant second to jobs in the economy and inflation, but number two nonetheless. And then for women, both older women and younger women, gun control is the number two issue, mm. uh, particularly for, for older women. And Anecdotally, I, I believe that this has to do with their kids and their grandkids and their fear for them growing up in a very different world than they did. That being said, like you said, it's really, really hard to create a one-size-fits-all rule for a country that has a uh, hundred different cultures wrapped into one. And if you go and you talk to people in Wyoming about gun control, you're First of all, not going to get anywhere. And second of all, you're you're going to be in the wrong because uh, they have a system that works for them. And, you know, I, I'm hesitant to ever say stuff like this because five seconds later, there's a story and right, uh, right. Horrible. But Massachusetts is a really good example of a place that all gun violence is horrible. And that goes without saying, but we have a pretty good track record here. And what we have kind of works for us. And and the rules on the books in, in those places are dramatically different. So politically, I think this has to be a district by district, state by state issue as far as how to talk about these things. And then, you know, culturally, you just have to understand that it, it's so different in every state and every congressional district. I mean, e even within states, I, I, I do a lot of work in on the West Coast and, you know, what works in Portland, Oregon versus the rest of Oregon is crazy, crazy different. Yeah, I, I think it's, it makes it difficult for national or federal candidates 
to be able to to craft a message around this, right? Because even more so than the abortion thing, because you're like, well, you know, it's like, because it really is so different. I mean, we we have the strictest gun laws in the nation in Massachusetts. It doesn't mean you can't get a gun, right? right. Whereas if you have the strictest, strictest abortion laws, you might not be able to have an abortion. It, so it's like a different conversation than that. But I yeah. think that those are definitely conversations that, like I said, my, my friend is looking at her, you know, three, four-year-old and saying, I don't want him to grab a gun in someone's house. That's that's a very different conversation than anyone has ever had in the past. But a, a very easy opposite side of that is, you know, Chicago also has the strictest gun True. laws. Right. Right. So at, at some point, is it a public safety issue? Is it a crime issue? Is it a, a economic issue because people don't have jobs? Is like all of these other things factor in in a way that, again, is is deeper than you know, an inch deep and a mile wide, which a lot of these topics sort of get that type of attention. Yeah, uh, which is why the the messaging around it is just so. Critical. It's tough. Well, I mean, you know, again, it goes goes to what you're saying. Like in a sound bite, it's hard to say. You know, do you say I'm for gun rights? I'm I'm against gun rights, right? Because you have someone who's going to to take that and run with it. And at the same time, yes, like Chicago, we hear every single day, right? Every single day, there's something that comes out of Chicago that is terrible and horrible and, you know, makes your stomach turn. But, you know, I'm just always looking for a way to, and it's easier for talking heads. It's easier for someone like me to go out and and try to explain to women, you know, on the abortion issue or on the, on the gun issue more so than one of the candidates. But it's really, I mean, I think the polling is super interesting. And I think how that 10% really needs to, someone needs to figure out a way to get to them, right? And it's, it's you know, that's that's not necessarily your job, but you're really pinpointing where the deficiency is. And I think that that's, that's actually the important part is that there is a deficiency and it needs to be made up somewhere. And how do you make it up? Totally. So any prognosticating for 2024? Like any, if you look into your little polling crystal ball, is there anything that you could see? (laughs) I'll make a few predictions. One, I think this presidential election will take dozens of turns between now and Super Tuesday and to the point of convention and having a nominee. I don't think we're on this predetermined track where everything's going to kind of stay status quo or fall into place. As far as congressional districts are concerned and the control of the House and the Senate, I think there's some gains left on the field in 2022 that are very much back up for grabs in 2024. And and so as Republicans, I, I, I think the opportunity to continue to gain on the majority in the House is very real. I think the opportunity to uh, take back the Senate is very real. And then as far as like the the way issues shape this election, something I tell clients constantly is polls are a, a snapshot in time. They are good for that moment and maybe a couple of weeks after that. And uh, trust me, I'm not discouraging people from polling, but it's important to remember the context thereof. Because if you're working off of old information, you're not going to end up where you want to be. And then, you know, the number one thing that scares me about candidates and institutions and trade associations and people who are trying to move the needle on on topics is this thought is I live this every day. I talk to my constituents every day. I know what their problems are. I know what their concerns are. 
there's a reason the best political consultants in the country don't start a project till they've pulled it. And then don't continue on that message until they pulled it again and then check back in as often as humanly possible. Because if you're not measuring the movement, then you're going to wake up on election day with absolutely no idea whether you're going to win or lose. And if you haven't been checking in with brush fires along the way, then you may have just lit a bunch of money on fire. If you're running a million dollar campaign and you're doing a you know a million dollars worth of uh, voter contact, you're much better off spending nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of voter contact on a message that you know is correct than a million dollars worth on a message that you're hoping is correct. And that doesn't take any away from smart candidates and smart legislators and smart local officials and smart consultants who do follow this stuff and do have a better idea than your average person. But the idea that you're just going to ride that wave of information unchecked is a dangerous game to play. Mm, I think that's really excellent advice, actually. Yes, it is excellent. <laughs> it is excellent advice. <laughs> it is it is a it's like Russian roulette with money and time and and reputation. So I think it's it's really good advice. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see. I think this is going to take lots of twists and turns. I agree that polling data, it's like, you know, sometimes I go back and I'm researching something and I find, you know, a poll from, oh, 2021. I'm, I, I was just doing this last week or two weeks ago and I was looking for something and it came up with an old poll. I'm like, well, this is garbage. I, why is this even out? Why is this even living out there, right, in, in the world? Because this is so old at this point. This isn't even relevant to the discussion today. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens. And uh, Chris, I'm going to keep an eye on the articles that you write and see if, uh, you know, as you pull out your crystal ball more and more as we get closer and what issues you're looking at and what voters are saying. But I think it's phenomenal. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad I'm excited you're doing this because it's it's really fun. I appreciate that. And and thanks for having me. And um, if, if you or any of your listeners are interested in a particular topic or want to dive a little bit deeper and understand the cross tabs of, you know, how people feel about any particular issue. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear from them. And then, um, yeah, I would just hope people also consider running themselves. We need more candidates and we need more people to, to step up to the plate. And uh, if you're going to do that, make sure you have your research, you know, make sure that you're utilizing your time, your money, your resources and other people's time, money and resources well, rather than taking shots in the dark and, and hoping some things stick. Absolutely. Chris, if someone wanted to find you and use you for their organization or to possibly run for office, where's the best way for them to get you? Is it Twitter or what? how did they get you? Yeah, they can find me on Twitter at ChrisLaneMA. Um, but also my email address is ChrisL at C-Y-G-N dot A-L. It's Chris at Signal uh, with a period between C-Y-G-N dot A-L. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Excellent. That's wonderful. Well, Chris, thank you for being here with me on Political Contessa. And maybe we can do this again a year from now and uh, and see if anything has changed. If women have, we've moved the needle on women or any of these issues are changing. I can't imagine with Title 42 ending that, you know, the border and public safety is going to change at all. That's just going to get worse. That might impact jobs. I think, you know, the economy is 
unfortunately, uh, still sliding downward. And that's going to also continue to be a big issue. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, hey, it might just be climate change that climbs to number one for all of us. <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't hold your breath. Jen. <laughs> As they take away our dishwashers and our stoves and our microwaves and everything else. <laughs> and, just, and just to wrap up here, uh, climate change is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eighth uh, on the top priority list. <laughs> it's, it's, it's got some work to do. Yeah, I, I, I'm not, this doesn't come into my normal. I, I recycle. This is, you know, but I think if they, I don't do a lot of cooking, so they might be able to take away my dish, my, uh, my, my, what's that called? The stove, the oven, that thing. Yeah, that can go. <laughs> but the dishwasher and microwave need to say. <laughs> Your earlier point I read the other day, and this has nothing to do with politics or, or polling. It costs just 17% more to eat out on average than it is to go to the grocery store and cook that meal at home. So that's, that's a very real thing. And it's both good news in the sense that it helps our restaurants, but it also talks about what razor thin margins those folks are on too. Right. Exactly. That's exactly it. Yep. See, made my point. Well, Chris, (laughs) thank you so much for being with me. So this is Chris Lane with me today on political Contessa and Chris is a pollster at Signal, the premier private polling uh, shops in the country. Um, So if you're interested in doing any polling, this is a phenomenal, phenomenal group to look at. And check out Chris on Twitter because he generally shares with us all of the great articles and research that he's doing over there. So I am Jennifer Nassor. I am your political Contessa. And thank you for being with me today. Stay happy, healthy, and safe. Thanks so much for listening to Political Contessa. For all the ways to listen and to get the inside scoop on what's happening in center-right politics for women like us, head over to politicalcontessa.com. 